You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Richard Carlson, the CEO at Detectify. I think when we were a 20 person company, we ran somewhere around 45 to 50 events per year. All right, it's time for a new episode of the SaaS Nordic Podcast. And Daniel, we are keeping quite busy. Definitely, we've been very busy uh, working hard here. And you've probably seen some of the initiatives. One of the big initiatives is our flagship event, Sassiest 2022, which is planned to be hosted in Malmö, April 20th to 21st. And that's going to be one of a kind. And we hope to see you all there. And in parallel, we've also been working hard to get the community together, Thomas, right? Absolutely. So we are launching two new networks. So first we have the CEO network uh, that will be a unique concept that consists of short online meetings uh, almost every month and then a, a big get together and dinner the night before CSS. Then we have had a great interest. We are about 60 uh, people that have applied so far and uh, we're really looking forward into that and not just that we are also launching executive network so if you're a vp or higher uh, we have 10 different networks within different disciplines everything from product to marketing to finance to operations so uh, go into the sas nordic website on sasnordic.com and check it out and if you want to see more about sasius 2022 you can go to sasius 2022.com and just like every other initiative we welcome the community to contribute if you're interested in becoming some kind of an event partner or contribute to the different networks you're welcome to reach out to us either on linkedin or direct via email yeah and the email is contact at sasnordic.com but now let's go on with the show Today, we are very happy to have Rickard Karlsson, the CEO at Detectify, here as a guest at the SAS Nordic Podcast. Welcome, Rickard. Thank you for having me. So great to have you here, Rickard. We had the opportunity to, to speak to uh, one of your colleagues about uh, community building just a few weeks ago, and she said, you guys got to speak to Rickard. And, and here we are. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, I'm nothing special. I'm Swedish. Uh, I'm a nerd, uh, background in applied physics, applied math, but realized after a few years detouring into consulting, I actually really wanted to get back to security. Uh, I mean, it was not maybe obvious back then, but I said seven, eight years ago that I think security will be more important in the future. <laughs> and I think I was right. So you were most certain onto something because uh, now you're leading a successful company in the security space. But what can you tell us about your company in short? What problem do you solve for your customers? We simulate and automate hacker attacks to pressure test companies' external footprint to see what is the level of the security that they have and where, the, where are the weak, weak spots that we can potentially help them to improve. All right. And who's your ideal customer? Typically today, actually 50% of our customers are high-tech type of customers. Um, unfortunately, they are very secret by name, but uh, they are the likes of King and Spotify and Grammarly and similar. I mean, if you, br if you bring up your phone, 
you know, 15 out of the, you know, out of the 15 top apps, we maybe have 10 of them as customers. All right. Nice. So this applies both to apps and web services and, and company like networks, or is it anything particular among these? We are best at uh, securing modern companies with modern cloud infrastructures. Okay. So we don't really test actually the, the, the mobile app because the mobile app from a security point of view needs to see, be seen as a compromised resource because it's already out there. Anyone can reverse engineer it. So the point of actually doing app security is not that high. You need to secure the backend. Okay, you secure the source and the cloud infrastructure behind all that serves all these different clients. Yes. Okay, cool. Exciting. So why don't you give us the Tectify in, in numbers? So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the size of your ARR, your, how quickly you guys grow and the size of the organization a little bit? I mean, we are about a bit north of $8 million ARR. Uh, if you're looking at Kagers, I think yeah, you, we were top top three in the breakage report about the fastest growing company. So two years back, I think with 300% in total, uh, about 1700 customers, uh, 130 employees, primarily US, 45, 50% of the revenue is US, 40% Europe, 10% everywhere else. And we have raised about 30 million euros so far. Okay. And is that a conscious decision uh, that most of the business is from the US or it just happened to be so? The base in cyber is that 75% of the global spending in cybersecurity is in the US. Uh, they are so many years ahead of everywhere else. Right. And of, there are some forecasts saying that Europe will pick up and become an equally sized market as US in maybe five years. But yeah, 75% of spending on cybersecurity products happens in the US. Okay, cool. And you mentioned that you, you raised a, a nice chunk of, of money. So how much of the business do you still own? I mean, it's still, we are, we are fairly a big, we are four founders. So we are fairly spread out within ourselves. If anyone is interested, yeah, just look at our cap table, but. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, uh, so today we're gonna talk about different stages uh, that your company has gone through. And uh, to start in the early days, how did you get started? The Tectify started with a bit of a different angle. Um, my, my technical co-founders, so it's me plus four in the beginning, and it's now three of them are still there. And they were really, really strong white hats. And what happened in the early days were about seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, companies started to, instead of filing lawsuits on hackers, they said, Please try to hack us. Okay. If you find anything, report it to us, but do it in an ethical manner. Keep quiet about it, and we might actually pay you some money for doing this. Right. So they started hacking on, on this what's called responsible disclosure programs. And I think one of the first companies that actually started offering this was PayPal. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So they started you know, in their late teens with hacking big American tech companies under this, so to say, responsible disclosure waivers. Um, and we're very, very successful. Uh, so back in the days, they have hacked Google, Facebook, Dropbox, USDUD, Stripe, anything out there under these types of programs. <laughs> is that something you can put on your resume? Yes, it is, because, <laughs> because you're allowed to blog about it and you get money. I mean, they, they hacked Google and got access on their production servers and they got $10,000 for it. So this is something very much that is like a public scene. And... So while doing this, they started to simplify their own lives by scripting and automating their own hacking. 
and realized, hmm, maybe we should try to productize this. Yeah, because that's the next question here. I mean, it's one thing doing this in the weekend. I mean, getting some publicity, getting money from hacking all these uh, big companies. But how do you turn this into a business? You already went into that a little bit. But at some point, I guess, you guys decided that we want to start a business around this. And, um, well, how did you go about that? It started off, I mean, they had built a small prototype and then I was actually introduced to them and said, and I was really intrigued by the skills and capabilities of what they have shown in this bug bounty white hat scene. And then started to prototyping and building a small product. So back then, yeah, I mean, you started to build a prototype, put it on AWS, uh, put it on a website, try to market it and see if anyone is interested. It's not harder than, I guess, in any, anything else. Was there any initial interest or... I think there was a, with this bug bounty hacking that we were allowed to write and write blog articles about, we were able to gain early credibility and publicity in the, in the hacking scene um, or in the white hat hacking scene that made it possible to us to, in the beginning, have a bigger brand than we were as a company. Okay. Because many companies are trying to find an angle. Oh, what is our PR angle? How can we get publicity for this? But when you're on the weekend, you hack Slack. Right. And then you're allowed and you get a tweet from the CISO saying thank you. And you're able to write a blog post about it. Media likes that content because that is relevant. Because it's not, it's not that you have to put your company into some positive view. It's just that this is relevant news, actually. Right, right. And, and is that how you got... Uh landed some of your first customer was it more inbound driven via this pr machine or yeah we were none of us were you know cyber industry experts in terms of building a cyber security company so we were i would say in the beginning super naive uh, because typically i mean a, a traditional cyber company started out of israel you should come from the israel cyber commando uh, you raise the first money in, in, in from a local Israeli partner. After your first seed or Series A, you flip the company, you move it to US, and you should get a hundred one million dollar customers because then you have a billion dollar company. That is the blueprint of building a cybersecurity company. Right. But we wanted to say, well, let's build a bottom-up approach. Let's do a self-service long tail paying with credit card. Uh, let's build it more as a developer tool. Let's not talk about fear. Let's talk about fun things. Uh, so we did a lot of things in a very different way for both good and bad. Yeah, and clearly that worked out. But I'm a little bit curious, just like you said, you know, like everybody is expecting that uh, some of these tools should come from uh, Israel and ideally by people that have worked uh, maybe for, for the military there and Secret Service. But did you face any resistance there? Like here we have four guys from Sweden trying to do something that's rather difficult. I think we faced the, 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 the challenges Maybe not so much by the initial customers, because we had, the, we had sort of a, a, a connection to them through this hacking bug bounty scene. And you know, people knew who we were, strangely enough. What was really hard back in the days was actually to raise money on what we did. Uh, there was very few investors that actually thought that what we did was an interesting. Uh, they saw it as a commodity product, something that has been done, been done because it's hard. the devil for our product is very much in the detail. Um, and uh, so we're able to raise seed rounds from Europe, but then our A round was 
we couldn't find an investor in Europe at all. So for the A round, we actually went to the US instead uh, already back then. Um, because when investors in Europe said, but you are exactly like this company and this big investor already invested in them and they are you know, so past way ahead of you and this is a commodity market and it's price pressure and there's no differentiation. Um, then our US, the US investor that we have said, but we just IPO that company. You're nothing like them. Okay. So you mentioned that you were quite naive in the beginning. So it would be fun to hear some examples around that. I think one of the most naive things was the first business model when I, when I joined the guys and said, hey, how are we actually selling? We had a pay what you want model. So there was no idea about subscription revenue. There was no idea about um, recurring you know, income. It was, come on, run a test. And then you, you had a donation field. Pay what you want. It's, it calculated a bit, you know, this was our server cost and how much do you want to up this with? And then people donated. But what the fun thing actually with this, with this was that about seven to 10% in the beginning of people actually donated money. Yeah, exactly. I was just about to say, that's so Swedish of you. You're like, all right, we're going to do a lot of stuff for you guys. If you want to pay, pay. Yeah. So that, that's, a, and if you compare that to the traditional cyber model where the goal is to sign million dollar contracts right. from day one, yeah. that was a bit naive. It could have been the world's best idea. It could have been, but you don't really get the, the, the metrics that you need for that in the end. Um, and then it was, I think, you know, I think there was a lot of naivety in, be in the beginning when we signed some of our maybe initial Swedish customers felt, yes, now we're on a roll. But actually, if you compare to the customer base that we have today, that was just like, what did we even, how, would we, how did we even think that this was a success, actually? Uh, because that would never take us anywhere. Yeah, and also when, when I think about security, I think about, you know, really big and complex agreements and standards and protocols and everything so how did you did you have to deal with that in the early days as well when you started signing these bigger companies i think we came given that our focus has been on modern tech to some extent actually the hardest industry to sell security to because they are so picky because they are themselves really strong product people they are able to hire some of the best talent but in the same time, they, they, they are themselves tech companies. So they have a bit of understanding on what it means to support than a small early company. Uh, rather, if you had gone the traditional security path of selling to, to government, insurance, banking, and healthcare, then you would have faced this compliance situations much earlier. So given that we were so naive, if we had tried to sell to finance in the beginning, I think we would have failed miserably. So it was... To some extent, for good and bad, that we ended up selling to tech. Right. And, and at what point, Rika, did you guys feel like, okay, I think we, we're figuring out the pricing model, we, we understand who we want to target. Like, when, what was the tipping point? When did you turn this into a scaling machine? I think when we, we realized it, when we started to land some of these top notch logos from that have some of the more, the pickiest buyers in the world in the tech industry. And we started to be realized that we could actually serve these companies. And they were happy with what we did. Uh, and they were actually willing to pay decent amounts of money for it. And then we're talking in the range of, you know, fifty or $100,000 or, or even more there in the beginning. And we said, okay, this is actually something that people are willing to, to pay for. Right, right. And I think one thing, I mean, obviously I work in sales myself and, and I, I pride myself in uh, telling uh, 
future customers, all the great relationships we have with uh, some of the industry colleagues and the great work we do in the space and so on. And that's something you guys couldn't leverage. You can't necessarily, hey, uh, Netflix, I work with Spotify. I'm just assuming if you would work with those two. Like, how did you scale this? How did you reach out to people? What was the, what was the method there? I think the method that we actually, in the beginning, that we got traction was that we were able to leverage these pub publicity hacks that we, that we had. And then I think in the, also in the beginning, we were actually very successful on running events. I think when we were a 20 person company, we ran somewhere around 45 to 50 events per year. Wow. Well, are we talking like physical events or digital events yeah. or physical events? Physical events of, of different shapes. I mean, it could be a recruiting event. It could have been that we were on stage talking to, you know, we were on a, you know, on, on a speaker stage or that we were, you know, on a, in a booth or, you know, but something that we were out there getting visibility in a bit of an old school, old school way. But it was, you know, we were out a, a lot. Uh, so that was our thing two main things that we were doing these publicity hacks that we could get published then in Wired and BBC or the, you know, PC world or any of these, you know, big magazines or, you know, being able to be on hacker one, you know, on the top list of hack or, or not hacker one hacker news for, um, we have had multiple articles that have been, you know, on, on hacker news, uh, top one or top five for, for like a day or two. So these types of publicity hacks, all right. And then, then in addition, being visible then in the so the, the community events on stage as speakers as uh, and and I think that was the way that we scaled things in the early days. Okay, and was that that you hired like sales and marketing people that went out there? Because when you think about these hackers that are sitting in the weekends, uh, I mean, doing hacking, maybe that's not the people that you see going out. Uh, you know, forty-five events at the year, or or maybe you. It was like that. You cannot send a marketing person to speak on a technology conference. <laughs> no. That's, that's, I mean, that's completely no, useless. No. Yeah. <laughs> Pe period. <laughs> makes sense. period. All right. So uh, another thing then, I mean, when you needed to scale this, of course, one thing was to work with automation. I know. I mean, you have a product around security automation or, or what do you say? Hacking automation and so on. Yes. But w when you had to scale that part of the competence and uh, your offering, how, how did you go about that? It's not that easy to find more hackers, is it? No, but we don't need, we don't need that many hackers uh, because the way Detectify work, we, we're coming from this, okay, let me take one step back. We're coming from this world of white hat hacking and, and bug bounty and responsible disclosure. And there's actually a big scene about out there. And we said, on any point in time, there will always be more competence and skills about related to security outside of Detectify than inside of Detectify. So let's embrace this. So we built up a community of freelance hackers and when they find new attack methods or ways of hacking into a system that can be applied across multiple customers, that is a bit more generic hacks, they send it to us. We automate them and build it into our platform as modules. And every time that, that this mod, and then we run those modules on our customers. And every time that this module finds a vulnerability, the hacker gets a reward back. Okay, every time, so it becomes like a royalty or something. Yes, so it's like a royalty scheme. And the idea is the more customers we have, the more, the more value the hackers will gain, and the more valuable hackers we have, the more benefit it will be for the customers. So long-term, so Detectify is, so to say, 
simulated attacks is partially some, some things that we built in-house, but partially also sourced from a community of hackers that sends us their latest uh, intellectual property on how to hack into systems. Well, that's really interesting. I think a lot of companies wish they had a community that could work for them and could help them to improve their business. So how do you go about this? How, how do you build such a community and maintain it over time? I don't think we really know yet. <laughs> Darn it. We were but, looking for the golden yeah, nugget here. Yeah, like. yeah. <laughs> Secret sauce. Yes. But I mean, the idea, I think, in, in there, the idea comes from that the team comes from the community themselves. They have a fairly high credibility and street cred in the community. People look up to them. Um, and when we said that we're going to start this community, people were interested and, and find the business model innovative. But the community, they are typically in, in our world, they are driven by both financial, but a lot of also by gamification and ethical means. So we need to really be careful with how we position our brand to not alienate the community, because this is a very elite community that is very picky, actually, and that has very high standards for how companies or organizations to act in an ethical way. Do you still have some of your, your guys active in the community? Yes, they are. They are. I mean, they are out there, you know, visible on, in the scene, putting out new articles, putting out blogs, uh, talking at events and things like this. So, yes, our, our team is very much active in the community. SAS Nordic is growing, and now we're launching a unique peer-to-peer -peer community on Slack. My name is Nina, I'm the SAS Nordic Community Manager, and I would like to invite you to join this exciting forum. This will be the place to network, collaborate, and share knowledge with other SAS professionals in the Nordics. The SAS Nordic community is free and open to everyone working in Nordic SAS companies. Come join us at sasnordic.com. We can't wait to have you on board. You mentioned you, you were around... Uh 130 people. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So how many of them are on the product or tech or hacker part and how much people are in the more go-to-market positions? You would see about 60, 70 people in product technology, community, data science, uh, cloud ops, uh, that area. And then you would see about... 45 people in the commercial side. Okay. And then we are about 15 people in HR, support, finance, legal, and those sites. I hope that that adds up to 130. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, clearly you've been on a fantastic journey over the past few years here and, and the success speaks for itself. But if you look back at this and for, for other founders, maybe in an earlier stage of their, their journey, what are the, some of the key learnings that you'd like to share with our audience? I think coming into a special field as Detectify, we very early on, there's a fine balance between balancing experience and general capabilities. Uh, I think we came into this saying that it's very easy and you can just hire people with general capabilities. Um, and then, the, but the, I think the balance on how, how much experience do you need to have and how much just general capabilities you need? I think that's a very fine and you need to figure that one out in, in for each of the cases. And what we have seen is on one side, that's brought us, we went more for the general capabilities when we hired people. And I think for one side, that gave us a lot of that. We are not doing things in a traditional way. 
And that's the way I wanted the company to run in terms of a cybersecurity. We have a great diversity. We have 35 nationalities. I think it's around 45% female in the company. And then you, then you can consider that we are B2B SaaS in security. Right. Uh, and to, to run with those type of, so to say, culture and metrics behind it. Mm. Because I think the cyber industry is like, I think 15 to 20% if you just look at it from a, from a men versus female uh, point of view. But then in the same time, it's challenging because this is a field where you actually need to have fairly detailed knowledge because it's not like if you're building like a checkout solution or uh, an e-commerce website where you can say, this is common sense because I also do e-commerce and I shop myself and I can understand how this works. In, in some areas, if you don't understand how the DNS infrastructure of the internet work, you cannot even write a blog article for content. So our marketing team has over the years needed to become very technically savvy to actually, and of course, then they also have the help from all the company, but they actually need to get fairly deep into knowledge. And I think this is a balance that we have struggle over the years okay how much generalist versus specialist how much innovation versus you know traditional should we should we go for and i think this is different for different type of industries uh, lo- lo- looking back is there anything you would do differently i think i would have uh, recruited more senior talent earlier on in in all kinds of positions or in yeah. Any, yeah okay all right so what is in the future for your company what's the next step at the moment, we are doing a bit of repositioning of the product, actually. So that's, uh, or actually the whole company and the offering, because we have been standing in two different, uh, or we have had one official category that aligns with traditional market. And then we have had like an extra product on the side. But we realized that the extra product on the side is actually maybe more interesting. It utilizes the same technology. So it's not like we're going from a massive difference, but we say instead of going we're going to steer to a slightly different angle. And I think that is a very interesting thing that is happening at the moment to repositioning uh, the company into slightly a different uh, product segment. What impact will that have on your company? It will make it more clear what we're offering, actually, because uh, the, this slightly adjacent product that we had is the one that have people have not come to us to buy it, but in the end, that's in many cases what they have bought the most of. So uh, to make that more clear to the customer, and it, I mean, it's always a bit scary to, to change your messaging towards your core customer group and say, we used to do this, now we more like doing slightly more of this. So is this more of a positioning exercise uh, market-wise, or do you also need to sort of change your product the development, how much you put in, in one or another product or, or so? It's, it's, yeah, it's both actually. I mean, it's both. I mean, we can do a marketing repositioning because we've had the other product okay. since the past, but then we're going to redistribute more resources to it and we can actually justify investments in the product that we have not been able to justify before because we wouldn't really know where to put it. But now we have a framework and a, a framing of the new investments. So yes, there will be changes on, on how we focus our engineering efforts. And when it comes to growth, uh, do you have any targets for next year? I mean, we, would, we are, you know, in this, we have historically been in this fairly 100% plus growth type of company. And that's where we would like to be. We have a slightly, slightly tougher year this year because of some of these repositionings and, and changes in, in sales structures and so on. 
but I mean, that's the ambition. Is there anything in particular you're looking for over the next 12 months here, you as a leader of the organization? I'm actually really excited on how the company is embracing this uh, shift and change because I'm starting to see that everybody sees actually the the opportunities that come with it. It's a, it's a clear messaging, it's a clear product development path. So I'm really looking forward to see how this is going to be you know, received by the market and also by our customers. Um, it's a bit challenging sometimes because the customers doesn't really know yet that they want this type of product. Um, our most advanced customers knows that because they have are the ones that have been helping us building it. But then the more traditional organizations that are not the, the cloud native tech companies have not yet realized it. And the question is, how fast will it go for them to realize that they need it? So are you creating a, a new type of a category? You're going to have to force uh, Gartner to create a new quadrant for you guys and stuff like that? Actually, and that was one of the reasons that we're now actually putting our focus more into it. We have had this product live for more than two years and some part of it actually live for four years. But this summer, Gartner actually created a category for it. And then we realized, okay, now it's actually maybe time to put ourselves in the category where we actually belong. So we were ahead of Gartner. There you go. And who would you like to see on the show? Or is there any SaaS-related topic that you would like us to cover? I'd like to cover companies that are actually doing real and deeper technology. Uh, there are quite a few SaaS companies that are just, I think, Trello in some form. Yeah, we had, uh, I think, Ola Sars described it as uh, workflow SaaS, right? Yes, because, I mean, it, you know, everything is similar thing. You know, you, move, you just move data points around in a database. But I would like us to get in Sweden to get more attention to the more deeper tech SaaS because uh, Sweden has had such, such a tech focus on e-commerce and games. And yes, they're fun, but I don't really see how they actually make an impact and make the world better. So if you can find people and give them visibility for companies that are building companies that actually makes a difference, mm. and it's not just a workflow shitty product, then uh, <laughs> please bring them on. So any particular companies that you have in mind? No, I don't want to give a sh- I mean, that's, I think it's up for you to, to look for. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I think we know of uh, some. So yeah, so, some, some deep tech SaaS companies coming up soon in a show near to you. So... But anyway, Rickard, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for having me. And it was fun to chat to you as well. It, it was great. And I, I feel that after the last couple of sessions with you, my mind is expanded. I'm one of those that now I'm, I'm, I'm much more intelligent when it comes to cybersecurity. Cool. And as, as, and as a final comment, if you, do, if you want to understand the basics of cyber, just watch the SVT series of Hacked. Are you starring in it? No, I'm not starring in it. Um, but I think it's a real good primer for people that want to understand some of the scope and impact of cybersecurity. So I'm giving a shout out to the people that actually was part of it and they did because they did it great. Perfect. Thank you for that. Thanks a lot. Okay, see you around. Bye-bye. All right, Daniel, what was your takeaway from this episode? Super clever guys, super interesting product. I love their mission they're on to. If I would walk away with one takeaway, it would be when he was referring to uh some of the hires that you have to find that balance between uh general competence and experience and i've seen that myself that uh, in some cases at some stage of the organization you gotta invest the money in the right type of experience that because that's going to accelerate some of the growth and i think that's also what he alluded to a little bit so finding that magical balance is is difficult and it's interesting it's always 
you know, different for different companies, of course. But I think that was a big takeaway for me. So finding a really good VP of sales early in the the journey, is that what we are talking about? Everybody needs to get that. It's, it's the first hire every organization needs to think about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what about you, Thomas? What, what do you take away from this? I know this is a little bit closer to, to you and your heart. Well, sometimes I say I'm a hacker by night, but... Uh, that only refers to may, maybe doing some cutting and pasting uh, for doing websites and, and such. So it's it's not in this sense. But what, what I think is interesting is how they work with the community and how they are participating, I mean, within their industries. Um, I was a little bit surprised when he said that they were out so much, uh, being visible, speaking, being out there on uh, events and so on. And I think... That's interesting to to learn from being out there a lot, but also to be very close with the community, to contribute with blog articles, to interact with the community. And I think that is why they can work with this extended uh, resource of hackers, because they are themselves knowledgeable and very involved within the community. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think another thing that I actually reacted to, I don't know if it's much of a takeaway, but it was more of a reaction. Um, I'm going to stick out my neck a little bit and say that based on the conversations we've had with them and the numbers we've seen, this is a future unicorn. Yeah, I mean, the growth is amazing. Yeah, but at the same time, he said that he had a tough time convincing VCs support them on their journey here in in, in the Nordics or or in Europe in general. So I think, um, I don't know if there's like a lack of understanding of, of the space uh, maybe everybody is in, into workflow SaaS <laughs> yeah. and we didn't get into that maybe the situation is, is uh, different now so we, we forgot to follow up on that but it really it's going to be really interesting to follow Detectify moving forward definitely alright so I think that was that yep and uh, as you guys know we have uh, a few things uh, coming uh, over the next few weeks here to, to wrap up the year so we hope we'll be able to uh, see some of you guys and, and engage with you guys to, to finish off the year strong here together. 